This is the Salvationist Podcast. I'm Kristen Austinson. June 21st is National Indigenous Peoples Day in Canada, an opportunity to honour Indigenous peoples, listen to and learn from them, and renew our commitment to walk in truth and reconciliation. For this episode of the podcast, I had the privilege to sit down with Danny Zacharias and Chris Hocklow-Tubby, two Indigenous scholars and followers of Jesus who study theology from an Indigenous perspective. Danny is also one of the presenters at the Salvation Army's Inspire Conference and Congress this month. In this episode, Danny and Chris share some of their personal journeys, what it means to read the Bible from an Indigenous lens, and how we can take practical steps towards reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. Danny and Chris, thank you so much for sharing your time and your knowledge with us. Hi, Danny. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the Salvationist Podcast. It's wonderful to have you today. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting us. Alito, thank you for having us. Um, just to get us started, can you tell us a bit about yourselves and your journey as an Indigenous Christian? So I'm currently uh, living in uh, Mi'kmaq, which is the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people in Wolfville, Nova Scotia. I'm a professor at Acadia, but I'm originally from uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba. So I grew up there all my life. That's Treaty 1 territory. Uh, but I have uh, ancestors in uh, Treaty 1, 2, uh uh, three and five. And so uh, I say all of that in recognition that I've just learned a lot of these things because uh, my Indigenous heritage was not really something that we talked about uh, as a family. And that's due to the uh, you know assimilationist policies of Canada um, that took many shapes and forms. And so uh, the way that it affected my family uh, was through um, you know, assimilation by removing of treaty rights uh, that happened kind of a couple generations back, as well as just discrimination. So that was especially prevalent uh, in my, both for my grandmother's generation and then my mother's generation. And so uh, our Indigenous heritage wasn't really uh, something that we talked a lot about until uh, later years. And for myself, as uh, an Indigenous follower of Jesus, it wasn't really something I had thought a lot about until uh, kind of the past decade, um, 12 years or so, as I began to uh, meet uh, other Indigenous followers of Jesus that uh, weren't Indigenous in skin tone only, but in all other instances were uh, like every other Christian, mm. but uh, people like uh, Terry LeBlanc and Cheryl Bear and uh, Sherry Russell and others who um, who thought consciously about what it means to encounter Christ and to follow him as an Indigenous person um, and how that um, is, it, it is expected to look different. We should uh, embrace our diversity as uh, the wide peoples of God. So um, that's me, a little bit of it anyway. And uh, I have a wife and four children and two cats. And I um, have been living in Wolfville now, Nova Scotia, since 2003. So we've been here for 20 years. We're pretty much Nova Scotians now. Honorary Nova Scotians. 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. All our children were born here. Um, I am ordained with the Canadian, uh, the Canadian Baptists, uh, so the Baptists of Atlantic Canada, and uh, received my PhD a couple of years back. And I'm the professor of New Testament studies and the associate dean here at Acadia Divinity College. Awesome. Thanks so much, Danny. Uh, and Chris, how about you? Can you give us a little insight into yourself and your journey? Yeah, I'm uh, presently living in ancestral territory of the Bahoke or the Iowa people, as well as land that was ancestral territory to the Sioux and the Meskwaki. Uh, I'm coming from Iowa in the States, and I presently am an assistant professor at uh, of classics at Cornell College. Uh, my background and training is in New Testament and early Christian studies. I've written on the pastoral epistles and early Christianity, as well as uh, works uh, by myself and now, and now presently co-authoring with Danny here on Indigenous interpretations of the Bible. Uh, I'm a member of the Choctaw Nation down in Oklahoma. Originally, though, I'm from Southern California, and my, my story really lines up with Danny, so I won't repeat actually a whole lot, uh, because our journeys are very similar in so far that uh, I grew up in a family, you know, although my dad was intentional about uh, helping us to appreciate our indigenous Choctaw background, we didn't grow up in uh, an indigenous community. Uh, it was a suburb of Southern California. There are a number of Choctaws in Southern California, and some of that was because of the Dust Bowl and other um, migratory pressures to go from Oklahoma to the West. But uh, Largely, um, we, we weren't in a community, and so much about one's indigenous identity, I think, is, is about participating in a community, being connected with those, uh, and, and learning and observing from your elders and others. So, my own process into this was um, largely due to an invitation to write on indigenous interpretations mm. of the Bible. And this would be something that I had been curious about and had sought to actually do a little bit in my general examinations as a doctoral student. There just wasn't a lot there on it. And so that put a real itch in me uh, to continue to pursue that. And as I was uh, working on this project, I thought the way I need to do this is in community and in conversation with others who are are working on it. Uh, you know, indigenous theology. And that's how I came about finding Nates. And uh, it was through Casey Church. So I got connected to Terry LeBlanc. And um, this has been a long process for me of thinking about what it means to be indigenous and Christian over these uh, past few years. And it's just been a real pleasure to to write and work and think alongside Danny and within the Nates community, as uh, I think about uh, that 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 tightrope or that really beautiful invitation to take seriously the dignity and the beauty of my indigenous heritage, and thinking alongside of, of that as a a, a full um, participant discussion partner with Christianity and my Christian tradition and heritage that I come from, uh, and and especially this is poignant as I am a father of uh, two daughters, uh, Claire and Emily. They're young with my wife Stephanie. Uh, you know, so much of one's culture, one's family, you know, what, what is one's, what do you do as a family really comes up as you're raising children, right? And so now I'm having to make decisions of what am I taking my children to? Are we going to local powwows? Are we, am I going to teach them how to be, right? For sure. uh, what, how am I going to make and materialize um, our Chata heritage in a meaningful way for my daughters? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Who we are affects everything we do, right? Um, and all the more so perhaps when you're a, a scholar and you've talked a little bit about uh, some of your academic specialties, but maybe you can take turns just giving us a quick overview of what you study and teach at your respective colleges. I forgot to mention, uh, I'm also the director of graduate studies for Nate's and Indigenous Learning Community, for which Danny and I are both a part of, and uh, a community that has some very well-respected Salvation Army representation, uh, probably why we're here. Indeed, including our own Sherry Russell, Major Sherry Russell. Sherry Russell, who's probably rolling her eyes right now, why I didn't lead with me being the director of graduate studies of Nates. <laughs> so my apologies, Sherry's, but we will be talking a lot about Nates in this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. But Danny, I'm going to throw the ball back to you to talk about uh, your work. <laughs> my PhD is in New Testament studies. And so my area of research for dissertation and ongoing has been the Gospel of Matthew is one of been my one of my primary areas. Um, I also have uh, done some writing in uh, other publications just in terms of learning Greek. Um, and then I also uh, engage uh, more recently with uh, eco-theology, uh, readings of scripture from uh, ecological lens, as well as uh, obviously uh, just the hermeneutics of reading the text from your own social location, uh, in this case, from Indigenous perspective. So those are some of the areas that I that I teach in and some of my areas of expertise. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And that's something I wanted to uh, get into with both of you, because I know that you are doing work on Indigenous hermeneutics and approaching theology and the Bible as an Indigenous person. So I'm wondering if you can talk us through what that is exactly. What does it mean to approach theology as an Indigenous person? What are Indigenous mm. hermeneutics? Well, uh, just to start off with, you know, what does it mean? Um, so, you know, what does it mean that I, you know, my maternal heritage is is Cree and Anishinaabe? Um, so what, what does that mean is really the same question that everyone should be asking, you know, because we all bring ourselves to the engagement with the scripture. Um, and when we think that we don't really is when we can uh, stumble uh, and is when we can assume that we have uh, the right and authoritative uh, interpretation of a text. And it, this results in all sorts of uh, bad postures towards others who may have differing opinions um, as they encounter the text. And so First and foremost, it's really just uh, recognizing who you are uh, as a follower and how you are engaging the text. And so this is true of every single person. And again, so for me then, uh, in the context of uh, being someone with Indigenous heritage and approaching the scripture and theology, um, is, is rooting myself firmly uh, in my social location. And that involves a lot of things for everyone. Um, for me, it is both my heritage, uh, which is in the middle of Turtle Island in Winnipeg, um, as well as saying, what's the importance of how I root myself here as a guest in a, in lands from different people? Um, and it's and it's also, again, the indigeneity part of belonging to the wider community of creation, recognizing it's not humans above the rest of creation, but rather uh, we are within creation. Um, 
what are those things then uh once we once we establish all of those and we keep those in our mind uh when we approach theology in the bible what does that illuminate because very often uh we have been taught uh in church or in seminary we've been taught to try and recognize all of those things so that you can put them aside and then encounter the text um, without all of these preconceived notions or pre-understandings or whatever it might be, uh, as if anyone can actually do that. But so it's we've held up this uh, ideal that no one can actually hold to, nor are we called to hold to it. And so it's instead just realizing that we bring ourselves to a text um, with all of our histories, uh, the education that's been brought to us, our traumas, our joys, all of those things. Um, we bring to the text. And so in my particular case, mm -hmm. what I bring to the text is a particular heritage. And uh, those are good things, uh, just like your heritage is uh, is good. Um, and so what are those assets that then we bring to the text as we encounter the text and as we think through theology uh, from our particular social location? And so that's a little bit of um, when I when we talk about approaching theology and Bible as indigenous people, it's recognizing that we all encounter mm -hmm. the text and and we all think of theology uh, through our particular lenses. What do you want to add to that, Chris? To that point, um, our identities shape the questions that we bring to the text. And as a New Testament scholar, right, most New Testament scholars are as we you do, as they take their class on the historical Jesus, we're always you know. Uh, introduced the story of Albert Schweitzer, who is at in the early 1900s, is writing on the quest for the historical Jesus, maybe even late 1800s, uh, but just at that turning point. And uh, he's looking at the scope of decades of work of scholars who have written on the historical Jesus. And he compares writing the historical Jesus of looking down into a dark well and seeing a reflection of yourself. So surprise, surprise, Jesus looks like a French Marxist when it's written by a French Marxist scholar. And Jesus looks like a German Lutheran when he's written by a German Lutheran. And so at that point, he says, you know, I'm going to give you my point of view. You can argue with it, but I'm not actually going to go do more important work in Africa and becomes a uh, missionary working uh, at hospitals and as a, um, as a doctor pretty much down there. So it, it, this, this is not a new observation to the, to the world of biblical studies that our questions and our identities shape what we see and who we see, not just when we look at Jesus, but we, when we look at Paul, when we look at the story, you know, stories of the Hebrew Bible. And so one of the works that I have been working on in my writing has been, what do we see in the text? What will we notice in the text when we bring indigenous concerns and stories uh, at hand and asking these questions, right? And, and this is the work that feminist scholars did, right? Feminist scholars owning their, uh, you know, identity said, where are women in the text? What are women doing? What? How would a woman hear this text? And so in a similar move, right, uh, for Indigenous people who are familiar with smudging, where are phenomena of smudging happening in the Hebrew Bible, right? And we notice, oh man, incense is all over the place here. And you you trace out how Jewish people in the, in the, in the rabbinic text and Talmud are making sense of smudging the explanations that they give look a lot like the kinds of explanations that indigenous people are giving for what smudging does. And this is just one example of many of that, 
your identity shape the questions that you look for in the text, where you put the spotlights on the various characters and objects and persons, and who you even consider as persons, as Danny noted, right? If you consider human or animals as non-human persons, you might think a little bit more about their agency and their place within these stories and the significance of that. Uh, that said also, right, we may think when we go to the text that we're going in with this kind of blank slate and we just want what the text says. But the texts are full of stories. And these stories are lacking a lot of details in terms of motivations and where you should give your attention to. And then what the, the meaning of that is at the end, right? And we kind of impose all of this into it. And so what happens when you read a story with different frameworks and different models of human motivations or stakes or concerns? Stories turn out differently and in, in a multiplicity of beautiful ways. And so I think the work that we're doing, and, and I would say the best work I've seen in African-American interpretations of the Bible, womanist interpretations of the Bible, Latinx interpretations of the Bible, is this poetic work of juxtaposing uh, texts from our ancestral traditions of our, our heritage alongside, and, and stories and experiences alongside of the biblical ancestral tradition. And when you hold these stories up together, you can't look at them the same way. They, they both, they, they, you put them in dialogue and you see new things and uh, you appreciate new things. I think of James Cone's work, The Cross and the Lynching Tree of from the African-American mm. tradition. He raises, why has, why aren't white theologians thinking about and noticing mm. the low hanging fruit of the, all the similarities that that uh, exists and abound between the American experience of, of lynching and what the Romans did to Jesus. And it's, it's, it's beautiful and it's powerful. And, and so kind of in that vein, I, I just recently uh, uh, worked on a piece thinking about the Babylonian exile and that move away from the land in, in conversation with experiences of the Trail of Tears. And for our, you know, my Choctaw people, right, who were moved originally from uh, Mississippi, mm. uh, going into Oklahoma and doing that research, you know, I'd known the story, but man, I did not know the gravity of details and the trauma and the chaos that was imposed upon the Choctaw people from the U.S. government in the terrible relocation, the forced removal of the Choctaw and many other tribes, including the Cherokee, Muscogee Creek, the Seminoles and others, uh, and all the broken trees along the way. So. Um, you know, when we, we bring our stories, it becomes an opportunity, um, right? Because, you know, to, to make these better known, because pastors are always making decisions of what stories they're going to share on the pulpit. And those are always informed by what they think is important. And what they think is important is shaped right. by their experiences and, you know, what I like to say, their spider sense, right? Their, uh, <laughs> these little pop culture analogy. No, that, that is so fascinating. And I really appreciate the concrete examples you gave, the smudging and the um, the Trail of Tears and how that ties into the experience of exile, because I think you're absolutely right. You know, um, for myself as a non-Indigenous person, I didn't make the connection between something like incense and smudging. But once you see it, you see it. And, and how beautiful is that, that there is this harmony between the different uh, approaches or experiences um, and, and Danny, I don't know if you have any examples from your work as well that, that come to mind of, of this kind of thing where, whether it's a story or asking a certain question actually illuminates, uh, the scriptures in, in a totally different way. Chris has said it well already that it's 
about bringing different questions, a different set of questions. And it's not like the questions have never been thought of. Maybe uh, they have been in in disparate mm-hmm. places, but it's uh, kind of brought together. And that's really what, when we talk about Indigenous hermeneutics, like the work that Chris and I are doing together, um, both in essay forms as well as uh, eventually in book form, um, that's really what it's about is saying these are some persistent questions that would arise um, from shared Indigenous worldviews, as it were, um, that then as we come to the text um, with those sets of questions and this kind of framework, then you read the text in that light. And so I've recently uh, done some uh, commentary work, for instance, on Matthew and kind of asking these types of questions, going into the text and then asking those types of questions um, and saying, uh, what is it that we see here um, that uh, from an Indigenous perspective, again, aligns with ways that we have uh, thought about spirituality or relationship with creator. Um, And a great uh, scholar that I can uh, point to that we both mutually admire, uh, Steve Charleston, who's done uh, really good work on again reading the text from Indigenous lens. So I'm I'm shamelessly uh, stealing from him, but uh, a book that he's uh, looked at is looking at what he calls the vision quests of Jesus, and so we think about Jesus going out into the wilderness um, Mm. as a time of temptation, and he frames it in terms of a vision quest. And so what does that mean to read it in that lens that Jesus is out amongst uh, creation? Uh, It's only him and creator. And and it's right after that, that Jesus then steps out and starts his ministry. It's Jesus doesn't really do anything in Matthew, as it were, uh, concretely in terms of ministry until after that. Mm. And uh, Danny, you're going to be giving a workshop at the Inspire Conference in Congress, where you'll be talking about how decolonizing scripture can transform how we share the love of Jesus. I'm wondering, can you unpack that a bit for us? Uh, what does it actually mean to decolonize scripture? Yeah, uh, there's quite a few components to it. Um, maybe if I could just use an, one example or a, an a, a illustration. Um, I think decolonizing is a process of, uh, if you can imagine a meeting at a, in a boardroom and there's a, there's like a stand at the end of the table, like a, a preacher's stand as it were. And, um, one person is controlling that particular stand. Um, and they're there most of the time doing most of the talking. Um, and if anyone takes the place of that person to speak for a time it's under the control of that person and that's uh, quite often how discussions in theology and scripture have gone is that the person in prime control in the main speaking space has been uh western european uh christians and so theology is theology if it's done from uh, a white European, but it's African theology if it's done by a black person. It's indigenous theology. So everything else gets an adjective except for the the true theology, which is done by the white Western. And so we need to start thinking about talking about it like Western theology or European theology. Every theology has an adjective, whether or not you've 
uh, assigned the adjective to a uh, adjective to it or not. And that's true of our interpretations of texts of hermeneutics. And so decolonizing, again, with this illustration uh, that I hopefully painted in a decent light, is removing that idea of a particular speaker's stand and removing uh, the person who is in control of the conversation and saying, let's all be in conversation equally around a table together so that no one uh, perspective is valued over another, but rather we appreciate and hear uh, from one another and value one another, given the perspectives that we bring and the contexts that we're in as we approach scripture and then try to live it out. So uh, that's at least one aspect of decolonization. And so hopefully any person, regardless of uh, your ethnicity, uh, can see the value in hearing from the global church um, in their particular context, in their uh, ethnic spaces, in their geographic spaces, uh, what that brings. So regardless of whether you're an Indigenous person or a settler, uh, we can all be uh, built up by hearing from the diversity within the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. What would you add to that, Chris? Yeah, you know what I think about decolonize. I, I want to clarify that it's not this project to get back to some nostalgic pre-contact culture, because that that in and of itself is an impossibility. Uh, but also, you know, cultures aren't static things. Um, and I think in particular from a Chata context, right, there's ways in which we are so removed from the Mississippi Chata culture, right, in, in, in some of those life ways. And in uh, uh, so many uh, uh, people, especially living in urban centers who are indigenous, right, it, in their process to revitalize their, their indigenous life ways, have participated in kind of a broad pan indigenous culture that really is coming from the 1960s and 70s in the U.S. context. And so, right, they're, they're, the quest to kind of go back to something that is so far past and removed, right, is not really the goal when we say decolonize, right? But, but it is nonetheless to um, bring, to, bring forward um, some of these values that in some sense have withstood the test of time here in indigenous community. There are, you know, as distinct and plural uh, as there are with indigenous cultures, there are a lot of similarities. And, and, and one of the similarities, which Danny has emphasized, right, is this um, communityism. This is a, a, a phrase that I pull from uh, George Tink Tinker, right? That it's, it's not community, you know, communitarians or communism, right? But it's communityism, right? That uh, tries to resist this hierarchy mm. where we privilege, you know, people's status one over the other. I mean, there are certain statuses that we respect, like our elders and such. But uh, we recognize that it's a value, um, not just what we get done, but the process by which we get things done and that relationships are respected and community is built up in that, the process is really central. And so that image that Danny set up of moving the lectern, right, and, and creating space for everyone to have this kind of buy-in mm. is um, is reshaping how we do things along toward kind of this broad indigenous pathway. And so um, there's a lot of power to the word decolonization. I just, I don't want people to dismiss that idea by doing kind of what, you know, by doing what they perceive to be the easy dunking on it. Like, oh, well, how it's impossible. How are you going to get to some static 
indigenous tradition that's like 200, 400 years removed? Are you not going to use your computer anymore as decolonized? And no, 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 that's not, it's not what's being asked <laughs> no, here. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, because colonization has affected everyone. It's not, it's obviously, it's was targeting particular people. But uh, when I think about the, again, the global body of Christ, colonization has been to the detriment of all people. Um, and there's in the decolonizing space in doing that work, <clears throat> it's meant to liberate all of us from this type of perspective of, you know, hegemony and control. And, and so again, in that sense, it is, it's both for indigenous people, uh, but it's for the wider, for the wider body of Christ. Yeah. I really appreciate that point because I imagine that with all of us coming from our own different contexts, decolonization probably looks a little bit different for everybody. Um, and for, for, you know, both on an individual level and on the communal level. And I wonder if you have any thoughts around that, around, uh, how decolonization can work for both indigenous folks and, uh, settlers too. Like one thing I think about is, thinking through my uh thinking through my theological education so i did an undergrad in biblical studies i did a master of divinity i did a master of arts and i did a phd and so in those first three degrees which were all you know course based um i can only think of uh one or two non-white non-european readings that were required readings and so that was, you know, that is changing a lot now in many spaces, not in every space, but in many seminaries and theological education. And that's, I think that's a good practical example. It's it's obviously not necessary. It's not necessarily enough, but it's certainly a really good start um, where you are exposed to different ways of encountering God, theology, scripture, different ways of being, uh, of practicing your discipleship, uh, different ways that the church can gather and, uh, worship. And so, so those are the, those are, I think, small examples of where we've seen, uh, a, a decolonizing, uh, spirit, uh, take root within theological education. Um, and it's a it's a good first step and and then the question is well what conversations come out of that um because the challenge is because we come uh with a western uh western kind of trained mindset quite often we still want to think in hierarchies and so the challenge is not to say okay you've read an african american interpretation of this text you've read a a, a korean interpretation of the text and you've read a european interpretation of this text now tell me which one is best right so we still want to high, we still want to put them in a hierarchy instead of saying what are the, what's the value that is expressed in these um how does this uh, well display uh, who they are as people as they then encounter god or the scripture and so we still have work to do, uh, but it begins, I think, with just starting to mm -hmm. expose ourselves to those many and varied voices. And again, going back to the illustration, uh, I'm very mindful that in uh, Nate's uh, Indigenous Learning Community that the founders of that group, um, they were doing that hard work of fighting just to get a seat at the table uh for for this conversation in the first place and this that was a long 
uh, battle. And sometimes they weren't welcomed in in certain places. Sometimes they were. And and Chris and I really are in a place that we're we're uh, enjoying the fruits of their labor. Um, so we're invited to a podcast <laughs> instead of being asked, you know, can you, in, can you interview us, please? Uh, you know, can we get a seat at the table or rather we're being invited now. And so I'm very mindful that really hard work was done uh, within indigenous uh, spaces uh, in the church that, that we're benefiting from. And as you mentioned, you uh, work together at Nate's and you've currently got a research project going together can you tell us a little bit about that project and what's the purpose of the project and what's the process you're going through right now? So the book is tentatively titled uh, Reading the Bible on Turtle Island, uh, North American Indigenous mm. Interpretations of the Bible. The, you know, so the book really came from, you know, conversations Danny and I were having. We realized we were both writing on similar things and feeling that there was this real uh gap in scholarship, a gap in literature of a work that was explicitly focused on indigenous interpretations of the Bible that were written for a lay audience. You know, in, in some ways, uh, we were both really um, appreciative of the work of Esau Macaulay reading the Bible while black, which uh, had has done a wonderful job of thinking about um, African-American interpretations of the Bible in an accessible way. And we just thought, man, we, we need, there needs to be something like this for the indigenous community. And so we actually are writing this book, you know, in partnership with it, with the same publisher, InterVarsity Press, because that's our targeted audience, our college students and lay ministers. And uh, the past two years uh, with funding from the Louisville Institute, uh, Danny and I have been traveling across Canada and the United States um, and uh, and doing phone conversations over Zoom, uh, meeting with indigenous ministers and lay leaders, um, hearing their stories, because we didn't want to be presumptuous and be like, well, we've got doctorates in the Bible. We know what interpretations of the Bible are. <laughs> and part of our argument is that indigenous people have been doing yeah. this all the time. They just haven't been invited to the table uh, to, to share these stories. Mm. And... Uh, and because, again, there's so many different tribes and so many different experiences, uh, Danny and I wanted to make sure that our, the stories we told and the perspectives we told were uh, informed by relationships uh, with a number of people across different territories. And also, we thought it was really important for us just to be in different spaces, uh, precisely because it's an indigenous value, right? That one's identity is shaped by the space that you occupy, the long relationship that you have with land and with, uh, you know, mountains and rivers. And so it's been part of our concern to go to different, meet people in their, their spaces and in their places and to, to come alongside as appreciative uh, admirers and, and, and uh, guests to, these lands um, uh, across some of the United States and, and Canadian territory. And it's not going to be exhaustive. And this is not going to be the singular work on it. Um, and there's going to be a lot of gaps. I'm already undercutting us, the work we're doing. <laughs> so I want to be humble on this because you can always say, well, did you make it up to Alaska? Did you make it up here? Right. And so so we want to be humble in what we're the approach we're, you know, we're going at. But there needs to be something. And we hope that through our work that this will invite 
more indigenous interpretations of the Bible and 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 more accessible treatments of this subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds so fascinating. Um, is there anything that uh, has really stood out to you so far? Any uh, interesting stories or uh, learnings that you could share with us? I was really struck as I've done some interviews, uh, regardless of of theological kind of space that people occupy. So you know, I've again using the the often unhelpful spectrum of liberal liberal versus conservative, but you know, I've talked to people in that kind of range and. I've been struck how often uh, the idea of a vision or a dream uh, has played into people's uh, discipleship and following Jesus, and regard and that would be regardless of theological space. And so, you know, certain denominations would emphasize those; others would, you know, more not. <clears throat> and I found that. You know, I just think that's an example of even those who may not, um, you know, have fully uh, leaned into their uh, Indigenous heritage, uh, still have, uh, as it were, this blood memory of of how Creator uh, reveals uh, Creator Self uh, through vision, through dream, uh, through uh, spiritual encounters in different ways. Uh, so that'd be one uh, that I uh, found very interesting, and Chris can add to that uh, in terms of the New Testament because uh, I know he's. Uh, we've been doing work on that. So, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, as a New Testament scholar, when I think about Paul, I can't help but uh, recall images of Paul pouring over books. Right now, of course, books is anachronistic, but this is these are the you know the reform yeah the the Middle Age pictures that we get of Paul, right? Or the more recent like depictions. If you see Paul, it's Paul pouring over a book because he's he's going through, you, you can imagine in these pictures, he's going through Romans, yeah. right? He's figuring out his argument for how Gentiles are included in the people of God uh, without having to be circumcised. And he's going and pouring through the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, and through to my conversations with people talking about the importance of dreams and visions, th- that just reshaped how I came to some of these stories and I realized, oh gosh, it, if you go and actually look at how Paul talks about how he received his gospel and how he's justifying, like why he thinks that Gentiles don't have to be circumcised, he's constantly telling you that like, I didn't get this from like James or John or anyone else. I got this from Jesus, from a dream, from a vision. And I find this so funny. It's like, this is such, again, low-hanging fruit. He's like yelling at us, telling us that he got this from a dream and a visionary <laughs> yeah. experience of Jesus in Galatians. And he talks about his visionary experience in 2 Corinthians. And, you know, scholars in the New Testament have poured over Paul's use of scripture to figure out, is there some kind of hermeneutic or methodological framework or steps that he takes to arrive at his brilliant theology. And what they discovered is he's all over the place. He's using allegories. He's using texts that are out of context that no biblical scholar would be justified doing, right? If you actually take seriously his hermeneutics, it would make many evangelicals deeply uncomfortable. This is the argument of Richard Hayes. And I would say that well, yeah, he's all over the place because I would argue that Paul is actually much more similar to a Lakota visionary or a, a medicine man in receiving uh, divine 
communication through visions and dreams, and then going back to the Hebrew scripture to try to figure out how the scripture makes sense of his dreams and what scriptures he should be pulling out and providing new significance toward that he wouldn't have apart from his dreams. And again, you look at the story of the Hebrew Bible, story after story, it's not the patriarchs pouring over oral tradition or pouring over text and be like, hmm, how has God communicated with us? It's over and over, Samuel receiving a vision, uh, Jacob receiving a vision, Daniel receiving a vision. It's dream and vision, dream and vision is mm. one of the primary ways in which the God of Israel has connected and revealed God's self to his people uh, throughout the stories of the Hebrew Bible. And yet that makes us uncomfortable. I would say this is because of a Western colonial enlightenment sense where, you know, Christians post-enlightenment felt that they had to have rational arguments to defend and justify the Christian faith. And it's easier to do so if you emphasize and overemphasize the way in which you are a logical bookish people, because books are have this kind of Western rationality and authority to them versus the slippery slope of visions and dreams. Mm. That sounds primitive. That sounds, anyone can have a dream and a vision. And how do you distinguish someone uh, uh, saying something mm. that's kind of, you know, off the wall and someone who actually has a, a legitimate divine vision? And you know what? That's the slippery slope that the Christian tradition has existed, exists in and has always existed in, that the Hebrew Bible has existed in. And, uh, and so I think this actually coming to the text from a indigenous perspective actually helps us solve some issues for us, or even enriches our imagination of the dynamics. And this is why I would argue is that the Hebrew people and even people in Paul's day are much more akin culturally to a number of indigenous cultures and tribes than any 21st century person living in Canada and the United States from a Western perspective. And, and my last little note on this is that scholars actually have been doing indigenous interpretations of the Bible for a long time. They just haven't recognized it. They call it socio-rhetorical interpretation or sociological interpretations because uh, there's this movement of, well, gosh, we have to understand the culture of the Hebrew people and the Israelites and uh, the people of Jesus' time. Well, we need to understand how other Mediterranean cultures and indigenous cultures live their lives and have values of kinship and honor shame, right? So they're going to a lot of indigenous communities to appreciate and learn about these cultures and then bringing that back to uh, say, oh, this helps us understand the dynamics of what's going on with honor shame with Jesus or kinship. That's a really big deal when Jesus says, who are my mother and brothers, right? Uh, that That's a huge challenge to the kinship network. Well, the, the, those observations are coming from indigenous people, generally, oftentimes, and uh, it just gets erased, kind of, or sterilized in academic ease, right? So, it, part of what we're doing to it, I think, is kind of reclaiming observation traditions uh, that have already been set in in biblical studies, and actually saying, "Oh, no, we've we've been contributing for a whole lot. We just haven't been recognized mm -hmm. for that." Wow, it sounds like such a fascinating project. Um... And switching gears a little bit, uh, back in 2016, the Salvation Army was part of an ecumenical response to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission here in Canada, uh, agreeing to begin the difficult work of seeking truth and walking in reconciliation. And Danny, I know your denomination, the Baptists, have uh, been a part of that response. And I'm wondering, 
if you can talk about some of the steps your denomination has taken and how you've been involved in that work. Yeah, it's it's in some sense a little bit difficult to talk about how it, our denomination as a whole has done it because uh, Baptists are um, kind of a bottom-up denomination. Um, so, um, and also the word Baptist captures a whole bunch of churches. So there are Baptists in Canada that aren't in my particular sphere of Baptist. So it's all terribly confusing. Um, but the the denomination that I belong to, uh, we're connected throughout Canada with our missionary arm, which is Canadian Baptist Ministries. And so uh, Canadian Baptist Ministries, uh, I would say, did the the good work of, of helping the denominations in the West, in Central Canada, and then in Atlanta, Canada, to begin to have those conversations. And Terry Smith, who was the executive director at the time, uh, offered an apology. And uh, since then, on my side of Canada, we not only endorsed, but, you know, said we stand with this. Uh, we uh, moved a resolution within our denomination. And the big thing that I've been uh, working on in the best way I'm able to in my denomination is just in the area of education and understanding. Um, so there's a, a free uh, course that is run through our denomination's website that's been curated uh, by a group uh, that I uh, helped lead. And uh, within the rest of Canada, or sorry, first here too, um, we had some kind of mandates for education in terms of not only calling particular leaders uh, and encouraging uh, lay people in the churches to do that particular course, but also uh, facil facilitating the Kairos blanket exercise at several large gatherings. Uh, and then just uh, often fielding uh, questions, being willing to speak uh, at particular churches or gatherings, helping people uh, not only to learn about it, but also then say, what are the steps for beginning to build relationships uh, within your particular area in Atlantic Canada? In uh, Central Canada, uh, they've done, they had done a lot of, uh, again, intentional gatherings around truth and reconciliation for education. Um, so I kind of started at the policy level on my side of Canada. In Central Canada, they had done uh, gatherings and conferences uh, for a number of years that were very fruitful. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Um, and of course, we've talked about reconciliation on a sort of institutional or corporate level, mm. um, but on an individual level, how do you see us moving forward with reconciliation in tangible ways? And what lessons about reconciliation can we draw from the Bible? I think there's probably endless lessons uh, about reconciliation that we can draw from the Bible. I mean, the story is one of reconciliation because reconciliation is about restored relationships. Um, and that's what we see right from the outset, um, right till the end pages of scripture. Yeah. I would say maybe in, in our particular context, uh, and I think of our particular global moment, uh, reconciliation with the land and environment is an important component um, that we neglect uh, to our peril in the scriptures. And very often the scripture has been used to justify um, uh, the, the objectified uh, use of land and resources rather than reading it in a 
relational context. Um, and so I, th I do think we need to be reconciled uh, in that way. So um, that's that's one thing I would suggest from the scriptures, how we can move forward in reconciliation in tangible ways. Again, I mean, it's, we sound like a broken record maybe, but uh, it really is again about uh, relationships. And sometimes that is hmm. relationship with your own history. Uh, quite often settlers can be, can feel attacked or feel like they're being made to blame uh, for past injustices. Um, but it's really about recognizing the relationship that you have with your past history. Um, everyone, uh, you know, countries that are colonized countries uh, with histories of slavery and all those things, those have all, you know, those have all been built upon unjust practices. And um, to not recognize our part in that and to to not recognize how we have benefited from that um, as settlers. Um, I just think that signals this lack of uh, relationship with your own history um, as as an individual, as a, a member of a family, as a member of a community, a country. Um, and so uh, people need to reconcile with themselves in that way um, and reconcile with their own hearts and minds. I'm wondering, you know, I often wonder and have to remind myself to be calm and patient when I encounter people who so strongly react to this idea that they may have a part to play in truth and reconciliation because, you know, they didn't uh, steal the land. They didn't they weren't the ones that were on the boats that came, all that kind of stuff, um, without recognizing that everything is connected, uh, everything's interconnected, uh, and you're you're interconnected with your past history, um, and you you benefit it uh, from it. And so, um, there's tangible ways that people can do the individual work uh, in and of themselves, both to uh, reconcile with that. Uh, but also just the work of educating yourself on these things, because um, I remember, I remember in grade it was probably seven or eight in social studies class, the two pages on the indigenous peoples of Canada, with the rest of it focused on Christopher Columbus and Cabot and others, right? And so you you just were not taught um, because you weren't meant to know. Uh, these were skeletons in the Canadian closet. Um, but these things have been brought to light and many people have been speaking them for a long time. And so a tangible way is just doing the hard work of educating oneself uh, and, and hopefully educating your community uh, towards these so that you, again, can face those things in which you have benefited uh, because we all benefit in, from different things in different ways, uh, no matter who you are. And so those are some, I think, tangible uh, ways that we can reconcile. And there's these bigger movements as well, like Chris is, and I have indicated. I mean, what are your churches doing? Uh, it is likely that in your denomination, there is a group, even the most conservative group, often has these small cadres of people that are thinking about this, uh, but often doing so uh, in a very lonely place because uh, they're fighting against the majority or trying to hear their voices. and so. Uh, maybe it means uh, joining that. And if you're in particular denominations, it's a lot more prevalent, and that's great. And again, it's about joining that too. So, mm -hmm. Thanks, Danny. Um, what about you, Chris? Do you have any uh, thoughts on this question? 
Yeah, I uh, I second everything that Danny said. And if I were to lead off, I would emphasize relationships, right? Because what reconciliation and uh, relationships look like for any individual person, it's going to be space-based, right? Who are you by? Who is your neighbor, right? Uh, and it's not enough or even that meaningful. I mean, money helps, but again, at the heart of it, what what is money about? It, it from an indigenous perspective, it's it's about forming relationships and new networks of friendships and support and care and helping kind of the flourishing of all, all our relationships. Uh, you know, that said, and this is one last little biblical story that I pull from uh, Ched Myers, who's been an ally to indigenous causes. Um, you know, he talks about the story of the rich young ruler, Jesus, come, you know, who comes to Jesus and saying, look, here's all the things I've done. What else do I have to do? And Jesus says, well, you know, have you done all the commandments? He's like, yes, 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 I've done everything. And Jesus says, well, why don't you sell your property and your possessions and give it to the poor? And then you could come follow me. And he's really sad. Well, we you know Chad Myers looks at it and says, well, where, what would it look like for this person to sell his property? What was Jesus talking about in the ancient Galilean imagination? And largely the economy of those who are wealthy was based on land, land that these rich rulers and rich people had accumulated because of um, usury, of uh, not great banking deals, right? Taking land from poor farmers and accumulating it, right? And, and in some sense, Jesus is asking for hashtag land back, right? <laughs> and so we actually have this biblical principle of Jesus saying, why don't you give back to the land to people in a useful way? And a number of churches have been doing this, of thinking about their church spaces that are no longer occupied because church populations have gone down, right? What do I do with this church building? Where can, you know, who could make use of this church property? And so, proper, you know, so some church denominations have said, well, let's give this land back to the indigenous people so they can reforest it and, and perform ceremonies there. These are all beautiful demonstrations on that, that at the heart of it, at the very stage one of it is about building relationships to even begin with, with those local indigenous communities. Um, I will also say that one practical way is to invest in institution building. Right now, there are a number of indigenous groups or cadres that are trying to build um, institutions of theological education to kind of advance indigenous Christian flourishing. Um, one of the ways Salvation Army already does this, right? Salvation Army supports the work of our director, Sherry Russell, it, which is just amazing. And Nate's what cannot be Nate's without the generosity support of mm -hmm. the Salvation Army. So I want to throw out that plug and thankfulness. Mm -hmm. Well, I just want to say thank you so much to both of you for coming on the podcast today and sharing your perspectives. I feel like I've learned so much from you and I've just really enjoyed talking to you and meeting you as well. And Danny, we're really looking forward to seeing you at Inspire later this month. Yeah, looking forward to it. Unfortunately, I'll be on video, but I'll make sure that I'm, I got my makeup on for video and all that stuff and my mic is working. But yeah, looking forward to being with you. Thank you so much. Blessings. Take care. Thanks for joining us for another season of the Salvationist Podcast. We'll be taking a break for the summer, but we'll be back soon. In the meantime, you can catch up on past episodes at salvationist.ca slash podcast.